It was 1999 when a British sculptor by the name of Antony Gormley completed his work known as the Quantum Cloud. Now, the meaning behind the quantum cloud, I I have to read it for you because I myself don't quite get it. He says, he wants you to contemplate the mathematical structure underlying space, time, and matter, or as he describes it, the relationship of relationships. Okay. Now, if you don't get it like I don't get it, that's the point, because actually what Gormley wants you to do is to not just see this sculpture, but to see through it. And in order to see through it, in order to see the deeper design behind the piece of art, you actually have to look at it from a different angle. And when you do, you will see that inside the seemingly random piece of jumbled steel is actually a man standing within. You see, it's true that there is a difference between seeing something and seeing through it. If you look at a piece of art and you ever had an experience where at first glance you saw it and it didn't mean much to you, but then as you spent time contemplating it, looking at it from a different angle, a different perspective, soon you saw and appreciated the beauty of it, and pretty soon in some way it actually has the power to transform you. You see the world through the lens of the author. You see the intentional design behind that artwork, and it can change the way you experience the piece in the first place. Well, the same thing is true with God's Word, isn't it? You know that God doesn't want you to just see Scripture. God doesn't want you to just know some things about His Word. He actually wants you to be transformed by it, to see through to the original intent of God's heart when you read his word. And I think today, on a day like Transfiguration Sunday, a story, an account in Scripture that if you've been a Christian for longer than a year, you've already heard this before. It's one that we do every year. It leads up to the season of Lent. And the temptation might be, as you hear a familiar account in Scripture like the Transfiguration, to just just see it, but to not see through it. And we have a great example here today. Somebody in our text actually has that same experience. It's the Apostle Peter. In the Transfiguration, Peter is looking at Jesus in the wrong way, and he sees him, but he doesn't see the mission of God, the mission, the purpose of Jesus in this earth. But in order to understand that, we actually have to back up about six days 9 verse 1 says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. But what was leading up to that? What was going on in Peter's heart, in his mind, as he was walking up this mountain? So if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open that up and look at chapter 8 with me. Some things we see happening in chapter 8, Jesus does some miracles. He feeds 4,000 people. He heals a blind man in Bethsaida. He has a in-depth conversation with the Pharisees, challenging them in their perception of of religious thought. But then in chapter 8, verse 29, something really incredible happens. For the first time in about a year and a half that the disciples have been walking with Jesus, seeing these miracles, hearing his sermons, one of them actually comes to what we call saving faith in Jesus, and it's the Apostle Peter. The text tells us this. And Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. 
Peter's come to faith, he realizes on some level that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but there's one issue with this, one problem. Peter's version of the Messiah was different than the purpose and the reason Jesus came in the first place. Peter was looking for glory, but Jesus was offering suffering. Peter was looking for glory, but Jesus is offering suffering, and we see that in the next exchange between him and Jesus. It says that he then, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, it says that he spoke plainly about this. And the reason the text says, and the, the reason Mark explains that he spoke plainly is that up until this point, Jesus has been speaking figuratively about the kingdom of God. He's been speaking in parables. He's been offering little breadcrumbs along the way about what the kingdom of God was like and, and what his mission and purpose was to be, but never this clearly that he came to suffer and die. And Peter will have none of that. Peter says, no, this is not the Messiah I signed up to follow. I want the glory. I want the heavenly kingdom. Now, Peter is thinking, and he actually, the text says, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Can you imagine that? Peter rebuking Jesus. If you've ever had an experience growing up, and I do see that we have some kids here today, if you've ever talked back to your mom, what is, what is that like? What, what happens to you, generally speaking, if you talk back to your mom? You don't sass your mama, you certainly don't sass Jesus. And he speaks very harshly to Peter after this. You probably heard this before, but it says that Jesus turned, he looks at his disciples because of course they can hear it. They've got the same things going on in their heart that's in Peter's heart. And he says to, say, to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in hand the concerns of God, but merely human concerns because Peter wanted glory. Peter didn't want the suffering. Peter wanted the eternal promises of God now and the material blessings of God now. Think about this. The very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's spiritually hungry. He's physically hungry or exhausted, I should say. And Satan appears to him. And you remember his three temptations. The first was a temptation of provision. Satan said to Jesus, look at that stone over there. You see that stone? You can turn that stone to bread and eat. But the implications are, if Jesus could turn a stone to bread, Jesus could turn a stone to a piece of gold, and he could create for himself as much wealth as the world had ever known. It was a temptation of provision. And then he turns to Jesus, he takes him to a high up mountain and he looks over all the kingdoms of the earth and he says, if you just bow down to me, Jesus, I'll give you everything. You'll be the most powerful person the world has ever known. It was a temptation of power. And the last temptation, popularity or status, he says, Jesus, throw yourself down off the temple. You know what's gonna happen. Your angels will come and they'll rescue you. And then just think of what everybody will think of you. You'll be famous, Jesus. Three very real temptations for all human beings. And what Peter is essentially doing is re-tempting Jesus in that same way. And what Peter is doing is 
unveiling or revealing what's going on in his heart that he really wants those things. He wants the glory, not the suffering. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's what was going on six days prior to Transfiguration Sunday on the Mount of Transfiguration. That certainly would have been in Peter's heart and his mind as he remembers that day of being rebuked publicly. I mean, how embarrassing for Peter. But Jesus gives him an act of retribution. He takes him along, uh, uh, just three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they do a family hike, and they go up this mountain, and there, as we just read, the text says, Jesus turns dazzling white, his divinity is revealed. Moses shows up. Elijah shows up. These are heroes of the faith to these three guys. And Peter, I love his reaction. Uh, the text says that he's terrified. It's kind of like a terrified. He's, he's in awe. He doesn't know what to say. And he says, uh, Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Let's build three tents, one for you and for Moses and Elijah. Essentially what he's doing is saying, let's keep this party going. This is good. Because again, Peter is concerned about the glory. He doesn't want the suffering. He, he doesn't like the part where Jesus said he's going to suffer and he's going to die and he's going to be rejected. He wants the heavenly benefits of the kingdom of God now and he wants it to last. Because again, Peter, at this moment of his life, wants the glory, but God forces him to look at this earth. Peter wants the glory, but the glory of God, if you'll accept it here today, is actually the suffering of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the suffering of Jesus Christ. And if you don't like that, if you are having a hard time accepting that, don't take my words for it. Take Jesus' words himself. In Mark 10, 45, the last of his passion predictions, he says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is why Jesus then allowed himself to be betrayed by Judas. And he allows himself to be denied by Peter and to be abandoned by the disciples and to be taken captive by the Roman soldiers who whipped him and beat him and scarred him. And he allowed himself to be outstretched on a cross and the nails were driven into his wrists and to his feet. And as he hung in the air, the glory of God was revealed as your sin. Every sin you've ever done, every sin that you will bring into this earth were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and he breathed his last. And in that moment, as the glory of God was revealed, his blood won your freedom. By his death, by his blood, now you are forgiven of all your sins. They're gone because of Jesus. That's the glory of God. And that's when we begin to see Peter finally get it. He just starts to see through Jesus and not just see Jesus. Go back with me to chapter 9. And in verse 9, the text says that they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now, I find this next part, the last verse that we read today, very, very interesting. 
Because remember what the disciples had just seen. They had physically seen Jesus transform before their eyes this divine, whatever that was like. Mark does his best to describe it for us. They audibly hear the voice of God. This is my son. Listen to him. They witness Moses and Elijah. How incredible that must have been. But that's not what they're talking about. It says instead in verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, but they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Their imagination is invoked. They've never heard of this before. They've never seen somebody rise from the dead. They're questioning in their minds, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And think about this from the perspective of Peter. As he goes these next several months with Jesus from town to town, he witnesses more miracles, he hears more sermons, but in the back of his mind, he's imagining, he's wondering, what does this rising from the dead might mean? But on Good Friday, his imagination is crushed, his hopes, his dreams are crushed as Jesus, nailed to the cross, breathes his last, and he dies, and they put him in the tomb, and Peter temporarily forgets Jesus' words, and he's without hope until that glorious Easter Sunday. And imagine this with me in your minds. Can you imagine Peter sitting at the breakfast table? He's eating some food. And all of a sudden, two women come rushing into the house. They are breathing so hard they can barely get the words out, but they say, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. And Peter, I imagine he jumps up off the table. The chair falls behind him. His breakfast cereal falls on the floor, and he bolts, the text tells, the gospels tell us. He bolts. He runs as fast as he can. And when he gets to Jesus, he finally understands the question rising from the dead because he's staring at Jesus face to face and all his fear and shame and guilt and sadness are erased by the physical presence of the risen Christ. And then Peter is transformed. The risen Christ transforms Peter's life incredibly. And you can read about this in the first several chapters of Acts, but the very first thing that happens, this is the scared, you know, hiding betrayal or denier of Peter. All of a sudden, two months later, he's boldly proclaiming the gospel to the very same people who nailed Jesus to the cross. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 of them convert in one day. And then he goes back to his hometown of Capernaum where he had a house and he transformed that house with his family and it became one of the very first Christian communities where they fed the poor and cared for the sick and proclaimed the gospel and more and more people joined them in this mission and ultimately, finally, at the end of Peter's life, remembering what Jesus said, I came to not be served but serve, Peter gave up his life not to save the world, but to point the world to the one who could save them. See, Peter was transformed. He, he started to see through the purpose of Jesus and not just see Jesus. Which brings me back to this sculpture, the quantum cloud. Now, I've actually got to see this in real life, and I'm not fooling anybody here this morning when I say that I'm uh, more of a sports guy than an arts guy. 
I don't get art, I don't know much about art, but my friend who was with us on this trip to London, he had to see this, he, it had just been revealed, he'd heard about it, and he took us down this path, and this is the, the way we saw it from the very first time. And I'm looking at this going, this is art? I could do this, this is art? But then he says, I know, I know, just, just wait. And, and he takes us down this road and he says, don't look behind you. And when we finally get to the spot where we could see the revealed sculpture, we all just go, oh, that is cool. Now, the same thing is true for us as we encounter God's word, this, this transformation. The piece of art transformed my thinking that day, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform us every day. And something that we've been doing here at Our Father these last several years have been trying to live out a vision of helping ordinary people know and share extraordinary life in Christ. And part of that process, we kicked it off several years ago by collecting stories, stories of God working in the hearts of ordinary people doing incredible things. Because by 2022, we want to be the congregation that can have 20,000 gospel touches in our local community, 20,000 moments where the gospel of Christ works through us to transform our community and those around us. And I just want to end, I want to close with one story of transformation. It's a member of our congregation by the name of Sandy, who happens to be our parish council president. And she writes this, my coworker Diane, Diane and I go to the Commerce City Rec Center during lunch. One day, we were in the locker room talking about something that had happened at Diane's church this past Sunday. Another woman came up to us and told us that her granddaughter was very ill, and since we were church people, asked that we pray for her. We told her we would pray now. A second woman come up and came up and told us that she hadn't been to church in years, but wanted to add her prayers for the granddaughter and asked if she could join us. The four of us held hands in the locker room as Diane and I led prayers for healing and faith. We all felt a measure of peace as we went out about our day. Diane and I prayed afterwards for us to continue to grow bolder in sharing our faith with others. The granddaughter is healing, still a long haul, but every time we run into the woman we have now come to know as Edna, she thanks us and asks us to pray with her out loud in the locker room. Jesus today wants us not just to see him, but to know him, to be transformed by him. May we be the type of people who look at the risen Christ with eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen.